The Digital Care Futures podcast series is a collaboration between the Sustainable Care Research Programme, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, and the Technology Enabled Care Strategy Board, TSA, the industry and advisory body for the UK tech sector. For each podcast, we invite expert guests to explore with us the challenges and opportunities technology can bring to care and caring. Hello and welcome to the third of our Sustainable Care Programme and Tech Services Association podcasts. Um, I'm joined today by Tim Mulray from the TSA and we would like to talk today about digital shift and connectivity. Tim, would you mind talking a little bit more about the technical side of this for me, please? Yeah, hi Kate and thanks for the opportunity. Um, So the, the digital shift is where the major UK telecommunications networks such as OpenReach, Virgin, and, and within OpenReach, BT, TalkTalk, etc., are moving their networks from analog-based to digital-based. So essentially, there's about, I don't know, 15 million OpenReach customers, for example, in the UK who use landline telephony, and at the moment, it's the majority is analog, and the plan is that those lines are going to be migrated to digital lines by the end of 2025 and the plan is to kind of migrate those over uh, between now and and then. And what does this mean then for local authority commissioners of services or technology enabled care services practically? Practically obviously it has an impact on absolutely everyone in the UK that uses landline technology so anyone who uh, makes phone calls uh, using their home telephone and that also impacts on things like burglar alarms, uh, fax machines, anything that uses technology uh, or, or uh, tone-based technology over an analog service. And that includes people who have telecare alarm lines. And currently there are about 1.8 million people in the UK, predominantly elderly and vulnerable people who are users of telecare in their homes and by what I mean users is they will have, for example, panic alarms or pendants, falls detectors, door sensors, etc. And they will use this analog landline in order to alert their situation. If they're having an emergency, it will it will send a message to a contact centre, one of a number of contact centres in the UK using analog uh, tones over an analog landline and that's who predominantly has been affected by this. So what needs to happen then? So this analog is, is no longer going to function, so these systems now need to switch to digital. What then are the cost implications and things like that for these organisations? It's a little bit of a grey area at the moment. So it's not to say that analog systems will not work on digital networks. There has been a significant amount of testing that has gone on, most of it in laboratory conditions. And most of the products, analog products currently available in the UK will work on digital networks. But there's two caveats to that. One of them is that these products don't have a battery backup in them that will will operate successfully. So if there's a mains power failure at the moment, your analog landline will continue to work. But in the new world, digital, it it won't work because your router doesn't work uh, unless there's a a backup battery in place on the router. So that's one thing to bear in mind. And the other thing is the products that have been tested, the analog products that have been tested on digital networks at the moment in, in those lab conditions are exactly that lab conditions. The real world 
there can be a lot of different elements that affect how successful a telephone call is. And the feedback that we've got from BT, Virgin, etc., saying that whilst it might work now successfully, they can't guarantee that in sort of two, three years' time. So what at the TSA were encouraging uh, local authorities to think about is, okay, what's the roadmap for the migration of people away from analogue to digital so that it, it lessens the impact of that over time? And, and as the TSA, are you advising people on particular approaches to that roadmap and particular options they can take? Yeah, so obviously cost is probably the number one reason when um, we've spoken to our members who are local authorities and uh, housing associations, charities, etc. These replacement devices are not not cheap. Also, some of them will incorporate things like SIM cards for backup. So that in, that means there's a revenue cost as well as a capital cost for replacement of the, of the devices. And there's the additional installation charges and everything like that. So it's not, it's not a low cost endeavor by any stretch of the imagination. And what we're advising our members to do really is to, is to kind of look at what they've got installed at the moment, where the risk areas are so if there's someone who's particularly at need in need who might need to be looked at more urgently than someone else then it's almost like prioritize those individuals in order to uh, for a migration so that you can you can stagger that over time and also look at some of the benefits that can come from moving to digital which might be for example you don't need to send an engineer out to do some reprogramming work which happens quite a lot at the moment with some of the analog equipment if you've got digital, it might mean that you can make savings elsewhere. So there may be a cost up front, but ultimately you might be able to then recoup some of that cost by investing in, in more accurate technology. That's really interesting. So in, in the Sustainable Care Programme, we did speak to commissioners of services and also technology-enabled care service providers. And some we spoke to were thinking quite ambitiously about redesigning beyond replacing like for like almost with their digital products, thinking about using other things, um, bringing in Internet of Things devices, mainstream devices, and obviously there are implications there around standards and safety. But then there are the other end of the spectrum, and there are some that were just feeling quite overwhelmed about the prospect of having to migrate everything potentially um, and waiting for that government level roadmap or that government or maybe a, a large scale investment or something like that to help them all that perfect digital product that just does it all and has all the same safety standards and ticks that box and it was a bit difficult but then we also spoke to some local authorities and we've got two guests here today who have gone back and thought about the plumbing almost because there are areas of the uk where that ability to connect digitally is still a challenge um, either because they're poorly served by existing broadband infrastructures or because maybe people don't have the ability to afford access to reliable, good quality connectivity. Um, so I'd like to welcome our, our guests today. We've got um, Anne Williams, who's from Liverpool, and the council who's going to hopefully talk to us about what they've done in Liverpool around this sort of fixing the plumbing first approach. Hi, Anne. Hi, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to talk today. And we also have with us today from Norfolk County Council, Sarah Rank, who is Head of Business and Technology in Adult Social Services, Jeff Connell, who is the Director of IMT and the Chief Digital Officer, and James Bullion, who is the Executive Director of Adult Social Services, who've also worked to promote connectivity across their local authority and explore digital options for care technologies. 
Welcome, everybody. Thanks, Kate. Good to be here. Hi there. Hello. And can I start with you first? Would you like to tell us a bit about what you've been doing in Liverpool? I know you've been part of a, a, a long, uh, ongoing piece of work, and I'm sure there's been some changes with COVID as well. Yeah, well, as you say, we realised probably in 2016 the implications of the changes that were going to be needed. The mainstream and market leaders within the existing tech world had already introducing some kind of GSM units where there was actually SIM cards going in and increasingly we're finding some people didn't have a landline. So they only had mobile phone. So there was already a market there. What I think a lot of colleagues and as a commissioner of adult social services who commissions the telecare services, I think a lot of my colleagues across the country thought, oh, we'll just carry on using these devices, not realizing that a lot of the internal protocols these devices are using are also time limited. So very quickly, I've had to learn a lot about the telecommunications world. And I could see that having our own 5G network was an option so that we could have some control over the costs. The costs are actually, I think at the moment, I'm signing off every month about £16,000 for a SIM card cost. And that's roughly for about two and a half thousand devices. I've got 10,000 connections. So when the rest go to SIM cards, that really becomes a prohibitive cost. So we've started to look at how we could have some kind of control over those costs. And as I say, the 5G technology offers the opportunity for a private network. So we're working initially in one of the poorest wards in the country, and we're able to provide access for the latest technologies. And we're looking on how we can transfer um, our telecare services with the new generation and different types of technology. One of the aspirations I've got is to help people who've got their own technology. So if you've already got a Google Hub or an Amazon Alexa or uh, an Echo, uh, whatever you've got, that we can work with the, that technology ra uh, together rather than having for us to come along and put something specific in, which many people feel can be quite stigmatizing for older people. And there's a whole new generation of technology. I've seen some pretty smart stuff that's using radar technology um, that can actually monitor when people fall and raise an alarm without anyone wearing it. Um, and one of those versions is looks like everything in the uh, it has everything in the base, but it looks like a vase. So it looks like a vase of dried flowers or silk flowers. And a lot of people, even the elderly people who we've shown it to, would much prefer having something like that than a big box in the corner of their room. Um, and they don't want to have to wear anything, so they don't have to wear a pendant, etc. They can just talk to it like they might in an Alexa. And there's, there's things like that, but there's a whole world out there that we're hoping to try and work with. And you've done quite a lot of pilots related to adult social care with, with new bits of kit using this mesh network. Do you want to talk about some of those? Yeah, some of the, uh, the biggest successes we've had is with the PAM and device. Uh, which can be which can be used with a 4G dongle as well because it was we, we sort of recognised it was so good. If you haven't got 5G around, but actually it's a service which goes direct through to pharmacy assistants who can actually help ring up. They ring up the person, watch the person take the tablets out of the box, and actually they watch them swallow and can have a conversation with them to make sure that they're taking the tablets and they can monitor people's health as their pharmacists. And so if you get a relationship with them, they can have conversations about how they're feeling, have they got any concerns about what the medication is, any side effects, and they can pick those things up. Um, and in particular on the 5G, with its low latency and very big broad bandwidth, um, you can have very high quality video calls. 
Um, also in our care homes, we're looking to have it and, and we know that some speech therapists want to use the 5G network uh, because sometimes on a 4G setup or even on broadband, it can get pixelated and it's hard actually to do a diagnostic um, swallowing diagnosis. Um, so there's a, quite a lot of new services that we can put in using our 5G network. Um, and we're quite excited that the integrated care systems, which is going to be the new NHS model, uh, where we'll be working more closely together with uh, to integrate health and social care, a lot of the new technologies actually have benefit to those organisations. For example, the PAMAN device, which I just talked about, the benefits to the health service are actually significantly higher than to our local social services. With the local service, social services, we actually save money on carers' hours. And it's not just the money, we're actually struggling to find carers to deliver the care with all the much publicised issues around the care sector. But it also means that the medication wastage and the medication adherence has been such that it saves those significant amounts of cash, which is the holy grail at the moment. Because it's, we don't usually save cash, but it's cost avoidance that we normally make. Um, but we've actually managed to save cash uh, for the CCG on their medication bill. And unfortunately, as Brexit, Brexit bites, the actual supply of medication isn't as strong as it was a couple of years ago in this country. So these things can really help in a lot of these ways. And I think there's a whole load of new tech which enables uh, tech-enabled devices, which have got will have a really big part to play as we go forward. Um, and I think it's these new types of devices that we need to start working with. And then during the COVID pandemic, did you have to explore new ways of delivering? The service or did you bring in new new bits of kit really um because some of the other places we've spoken to in local authorities and care providers did sort of although the covid pandemic was terrible they did feel that it sort of accelerated things for them around technology yeah yeah uh, it did massively and so there's more and more consultations our own social workers are doing more remote consultations and that's where we find that our 5G and our aspirations of being able to provide it to free to everybody will mean that those who can afford a decent connectivity, uh, uh, to those who can't afford a decent connectivity so that they can have remote consultations or whether it's with the GP or someone from the council or a social worker, whatever, they're not disadvantaged and they can actually benefit from it. Because that's one of the things we found, particularly with education, there's a lot of children that even though there might be broadband in the house, by the time you've got mum and dad working from home, trying to do school full time uh, when there wasn't enough bandwidth was a real problem. All the data was eaten up quickly and there wasn't any time for Netflix or the match. So there's lots of big issues around and actually how we can get connectivity that works efficiently and affordable. So that's really what we're trying to do, is to make sure that we lessen the digital divide and start tackling some of the health inequalities. Yeah, so it's a wider piece of work, isn't it? There are other implications of being digitally excluded beyond health and social care. So along the way, what challenges have you faced? Well, we actually faced um, an initial anti-5G sentiment because of a lot of misinformation going around, particularly in the first lockdown. And obviously, 5G was spreading coronavirus, according to some. There was all the sorts of misinformation and false science going around. And it was a big issue up here. But look, broadly, no, we haven't had um, uh, much op uh, opposition to it. And one of our biggest problems now is actually getting the nodes on the lampposts because of the international microchip shortage worldwide. So we're actually being held up in the supplies as quickly as we can get them on our lampposts, really. 
We're now starting to work at some of the primary schools to make sure all the children who receive free school meals can access good connectivity so that they can make sure that even though um, schools are back, in, there is an expectation of quite a lot of catching up to do and there's all sorts of things to do at home and a realisation that families that can afford to sit around the table in the evening and help the kids with their homework on some kind of electronic device are going to do better in life than those whose parents don't have that ability to provide that kind of thing. So what we're trying to do now is trying to help everybody and what we found is that we're actually configuring the devices that, uh, that we give to people so, uh, for example, if a social worker does an assessment, we're configuring what device we need. So it's already uh, on our 5G network. So they don't have to, they just plug it in. They don't have to search for a network and get onto it. All that's been done. And, and there's a real concern about using complete IT networks. And if the electric goes down, and we all know ourselves, we have occasionally to reboot even just our television networks, whatever, when they freeze, when you have to switch it all off and then reboot it all. And sometimes you have to resource the network. And if that's involving your telecare, then that becomes a real issue. So we're hopeful that we, because of the monitoring our own network, we can use the service level agreements, which are much higher than is normal in the um, phone industry, that we can have a four-hour SLA guaranteed to sort something out. So if we get an alarm to say that Mrs. Jones on Shield Road has no longer got connection, that problem comes through quickly and then we can ring her up and say, have you got a problem? Have you unplugged it? What's happened? And then we can get out there quite quickly. Obviously, something like a mains cable or a power supply from the mains, some flooding like that might take longer. But we're there quicker because of the current mobile phone services level agreement. And we can provide all that because we're doing it ourselves. I think that's a really important theme that's come up in the research is, it, you know, it's quite tempting to focus on technology or in this case, oh, we've sorted out the digital connectivity job done, but you need an ongoing level of support and service for people, particularly to sometimes engage with bits of kit and, and things that are quite unfamiliar. Um, Tim, I don't know if you had any questions. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, for the likes of Liverpool and Norfolk, really, really pushing the boundaries and that's, and that's you know, great to hear. I've spent some time up in Liverpool with Anne, just just learning more about what you know some of the real, really great use cases that are going on up there, and the five G network that Anne's described. I mean, it you know it's great in terms of addressing some of those key issues that we're hearing from the re the rest of you know our members in the UK around how do we cope with the cost of various networks, how do we um, ensure that. The connectivity because as you know across the uk there's a really wide variety of of availability of cellular networks and things like that so so providing that i guess that local kind of private service if you like is really um really important from a not only a cost perspective but probably a network availability perspective as well and i think from a from a question to to Anne, i guess is is could you see, I guess, more life critical services moving onto that network over uh, over a period of time? Yeah, well, working very closely with our colleagues in health, as you know, Tim, in Liverpool, we're going to get a new hospital and hopefully it'll be opening next year, but it'll have 100 beds less than our current one. And there hasn't been an evening where there's been 100 empty beds. So there's going to be real pressure on that new hospital. And one of the aspirations that we've got is that when people would normally be monitored through A&E, 
um, after the, if, if they, they don't know what type of bed they're going to need, um, then they could go home with a docker bow. And the latest Docker Bow version, which we're working with on with those guys, is for a new 5G version because it can have far more functions, better video. The patients will be able to be discharged with some kind of device that will be configured into our network and it could be monitored by the hospital. And they can watch to see how things are so that the sort of vision that they have from the health side of things and if people they feel that people are deteriorating, they can go and bring them in back again. We're working with some GP surgeries and we're putting some uh, our 5G model into that. And you can get a, an MRI scan downloaded very quickly. And as a country, we don't use our MRI scans for anything other than specialist people looking at them. But actually quite a lot of the GPs would be interested to see and would like to have a copy of that so they can see what the actual issues are. There's quite a lot of opportunity to make sure with us that the service level agreements are required. But I think it's always been a risk. So uh, you won't be discharged something with something if somebody thinks that you're going to have a serious incident. Um, but those things can be picked up quickly and you'll be able to be discharged with the device rather than trying to find a bed for you for 48 hours. And there's more and more sensor technology being developed for things like urine infections. And quite a lot of elderly people get it admitted into hospital because of a urine infection causing confusion and causing falling. So if we can pick that up quickly, then we can alert the GP and get antibiotics round quickly. So we're trying to, we're using AI to monitor wounds on leg ulcers, etc. And there's quite a lot of high tech stuff that we can offer. We're also trying a haptic vest, um, which is a vest that goes over your clothes. So if you're visiting family, uh, if you're if you're in an, a care home. Uh, your family can actually over the telephone in a conversation during a conversation they can give you a squeeze and it can feel like you're getting a hug if you're in the care home I know it's a bit of a novelty but there's lots of people are talking about the opportunities that we can have to have this sort of things almost mainstream and we're also very keen to be in control of our own data uh, as an organization um, and in the sense of a lot of different existing telecare services collect a lot of data, but it's never really used intelligently. So yes, it shows how many times somebody's pressed the button and things like that, but it doesn't go into the granular detail about what that means. So what what is the trigger? Why is Mrs. Jones suddenly pressing the button a lot more? And is the care package adequate or does she need something else now? It's harder to get that information, but if we can automate that and through the collection of the data using it, we feel going forward we'll be able to offer a better quality service against um, an ever-decreasing budget. That's really interesting, actually, and, and, and a point I was going to touch on then, as we've had these conversations around the UK as part of the sort of TSA and, and trying to understand what our members are, are looking for, we've... Um, we found that particularly during the pandemic, there was in some areas a bit of a growth around families wanting some of the traditionally, I guess, reactive telecare services to actually take on more of a proactive approach. So that might be, you know, can you give Nan a call every day or every week or whatever and just keep an eye on her? Because obviously things we, we, we've had to do in the past, we've not been able to do. And then in, in a lot of cases, that's then continued. People have really seen the benefit of, of, of more proactivity. And I think from what you're describing there, with that level of data that you 
would have access to and, and, and across a range of things. It'd be interesting to see whether it's something that I guess your organization could provide or support where you could actually be more uh, proactive and preventative as well as anything else really. Yeah, and because we've got a joint contract with the CCG and hopefully we'll continue with the idea we want to move in, we can see as health we can be seen as health and social care. So the GPs don't get the details of the social care or what's happening at that level. So although our GPs in the city can prescribe telecare, that um, they can give them a prescription and they'll get the full monitor of whatever it seems that there's that high risk of. But actually the GP then doesn't know what's happened. So they might not hear back in another, for another 18 months when the social worker contacts them and says that Mrs. Jones is now calling 17 times a day with the really extreme cases and we would like you to be involved again. But sometimes that's too late. So we like trying to understand what that data means um, and I think it'll be a couple of years before we can actually start to use the data intelligently. But at least we now know what we want to know, whereas at the moment we're currently reporting, just churned out reports that are fairly standard, you know, how many calls were made around the TSA standards. And that's great, but I think the world has now moved on and I think we want a lot more granular details to make really informed decisions. So, um, I just wanted to ask you just to finish up almost is, is what lessons have you learned along the way that you would pass on to another commissioner? I think what we need to do is think what you want not what the industry can provide. I think that's what a lot of, way, of people are waiting for as you said in your introduction that there are some people who just think that there will be um, and it, that the industry will react and they will be set out something it might be slightly different than what they've got now but actually the world has moved on and I think that we need to. In some instances, I'm working with some of the big guys, various big players in this area. I think the World Health Organization recognizes the biggest industry in the world is farming, and the second biggest industry in the world is health and social care. So the big tech companies see this as a big market. But, what, but I think what we need to do is to try and get there quite quickly and tell them what we want, rather than waiting for them to develop things for us to fit around how to make that work in our system. And I think there's a willingness and an openness of people to work together. And I think that that's where we need to work with the likes of TSA, because I think they can speak on behalf of us. So rather than somebody having to speak to however many uh, local authorities there are, I think it's something like 142 different authorities, that there would be one, one voice that shares all of our concerns, because we all have the same concerns, whether it's the more rural or the very urban city council areas like ourselves, the issues are the same. And there are, there are a rising number of elderly people. There aren't enough paid carers to look after them. And that, so the technology can help resolve some of those issues. It will never replace completely the one-to-one -one care. That's not what it's there for. But we can help people live independently and longer in their own homes and have a better quality of life. Uh, what I don't want to do is make sure that the technology creates a dependency that then makes them totally locked in their own premises because they don't feel safe unless they're near a box. So then they become totally insular and really almost institutionalized in their own home. So we want to get past that. And some people have said it'll be a generational thing before the next generation will be able to cope with it. But I disagree with that. As you said, the COVID pandemic has meant that an awful lot of people, and there are now a lot of 90-year-olds who will have regular Zoom meetings with various family members who have gone out, got over and 
some of their reluctance and they're now relatively happy to use the technology. I think the GP face-to-face -face consultation is still an issue, but there's still an awful lot of people who are happy to have their face-to-face -face interview, um, their consultation via phone or a device, and uh, uh, like I'm looking at now. And for their consultation, I think a lot of people would be happy to have their consultation with, as I said earlier, a speech therapist or some other clinician or occupational therapy or whatever um, that can take place over the technology. So I think the world is changing or even has already changed. Thank you, Anne. That was a nice way to round it off a positive note. Yes, thank you. That was really interesting. I'd like to bring in Norfolk County Council's experiences of how they've also explored ways to improve connectivity locally. Sarah, Jeff and James, can you tell the listeners about your the work you've done in Norfolk around connectivity and how it's facilitated the use of technology in adult social care. I don't know who wants to come in first, but it'd be great to hear your experiences. I'm proud to say that um, over the last six years or so, we've taken super fast uh, broadband coverage from 42% to 96%. So, um, you know, big advances. Um, and we are literally putting hundreds of millions into gigabit fiber deployment now. So moving from super fast, 28 megabits per second, up to 1000 megabits per second. So really future proofing that infrastructure. Uh, and that's moving forward at pace. We're also working very hard to improve mobile coverage for the county, although that's a bit trickier because we can't directly engage in the way we do with fiber infrastructure. Also super excited about the rollout of our LoRaWAN IoT innovation or sensor network, where we've gone from nothing to almost ubiquitous coverage in just two years. And I think that's an exciting technology for uh, delivering care services into the future and enabling innovation. Can I come in there uh, as well, please, Kate, and say, um, this sounds an obvious point, but it's really important to have a strategy, uh, actually, in adult social services. So it's not, it's not that common across uh, local authorities to have something that looks ahead for three to five years about how you might um, make the best use of technology in integrated care settings or make the use of data between uh, healthcare and housing organizations and to do some work building the capacity in your workforce. So they understand the issues, they understand the potential and have got a conversation piece to have with the people who are using uh, social care. It's simple enough to say, but actually building that strategy and having a bit of a bit of a runway that builds on what Jeff's talked about in terms of the infrastructure is, is the first step and it's so important and, and we've been at this now for a, a few years so we've got both the strategy and the ambition but we've also got a bit of a track record on some things that we've tried out that are working which then gives you more confidence to, to move on and try new things or, or to collaborate with others on new ideas. Thank you that's that whole systems approach is really interesting and in terms of what is working have you are there any examples of where you've deployed technologies using these networks in adult social care? So our strategy over the last few years has been around the citizen, the provider and the workforce and cert certainly for the citizen we've got a really good assistive technology service in place and we've been deploying not, not only analogue but also digital solutions and what we have within that, so we've had at the peripherals around that, so thinking around the, the, the wrist-worn fall detectors, some of the smoke alarms and the sensors, the door exit alarms. And what we've recently developed is something called Natalie, which is our 
own now we're going to get the acronym now and i've got to remember what natalie is so jeff i just need you to remind me the norfolk assistive technology and living independently project and it's using sensors the iot network automated intelligence and dashboards all in combination to understand when people are living a lifestyle which is as it should be um you know regular patterns of behavior in which case we, we don't get involved at all, we don't need to, but it does allow us to flag up changes to behaviours that might require early intervention. And it's an exciting new technological approach that we're taking using a free to use network, but enabling us to redesign the ways that we support people living in, the, in their own homes. And just coming back on that, Kate, so it, it's really, really good use of the LoRaWAN enabling us to to trial that um, and to trial we're, we're currently looking at a couple of our housing and care schemes um, and how we could use that data and how we could um, help help those citizens within there so really exciting times and we did publish as a region we published a number of um, innovations that authorities have put in place over the covid period and natalie is one of the um, areas that that we submitted so really excited about that. Do you want to say a little bit about what you're doing with providers and the workforce? Because I think, again, it's the whole system. It's, it's making sure that everyone is taking on this journey, really. So from the providers, we did a couple of years ago, so this is pre-COVID, we did a questionnaire with all of our residential providers and trying to find out what, what works for them and what would they like to see in the future. And some of their, their main concerns was around the connectivity. And as Jeff's talked about already we've made some real inroads with that and then other areas was around um, the electronic care record and then looking at some of those um, those video conferencing so we, we pre-covid we we talked about trialing um, video conferencing with a hospital in a care home to rather than having a patient having to go in for an appointment we we could do that virtually to, to save the impact on the patient and obviously on the wards as well. So, so that was something we we're about to trial. Well, obviously, COVID then hit us all. So it's something we're now trying to, to move on and develop. So there was that, there was the, as I say, the care record, um, and then thinking around how sensors can help. So how can we help with some of the assistive technology? So not necessarily putting assistive technology into care homes, but thinking about how we can help them and how we can support them. Um, so, so we're really at that early stage now. We've, we've just updated our strategy and we had a, we've got a five-year strategy that we've now put into place, which is, and the key areas around those, around fixing those issues, fix, fixing those basics as we've called it. So we've already started on that journey. We can really move that forward and then joining up that system. So how we all work together and whether that's health, social care providers, across the board, so thinking around the shared care record um, and thinking about other opportunities, the virtual wards and, and what we can do there. And then at the in the moment, so what are we doing right now? What opportunities are available to us and how can we really expand that and, and really build on some of those technologies out there? So we've got that the analog switch off in 2025 so what can we be doing now to be moving towards that and being ready for that the video tech really building on the video technology 
We've piloted, we've been really lucky in piloting Alcove, the Alcove device with our daycare providers. So what can we do with that now? Can we move that on further and, and really roll that out to maybe home care providers? Is there something there rather than a home care provider having to go out and visit? Could we do something virtually? Accepting it's not going to work for everybody, but is that something we could then explore? And then the other areas is thinking around that digital inclusion and again working with our providers around that digital inclusion and then the last thing is around the workforce and what are we doing with the workforce and Jeff I don't know if you wanted just to pick up on what we've achieved certainly over the last 12 months because again we've moved mountains some of the things we wanted to do pre-COVID actually that has given us COVID has given us the opportunity to move things on much quicker so Jeff I don't know if you wanted to pick up on that yeah, I think COVID has really acted as an accelerator for us. I don't think it changed um, too much in our strategy, but it really moved it along at pace. So we had a smarter working programme already, which was trying to ensure that uh, our social workers in particular, um, all staff and in particular social workers were able to work from anywhere, that they had the right kit, the right connectivity, the right software, and crucially the right skills to be able to work anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And what I think has happened through COVID is almost overnight that went from being a proportion of the workforce to pretty much everybody. And I think we've learned a lot through necessity uh, about effective ways to engage with, with our clients, residents, uh, patients, you know, whatever context we, we see them in. And I think that's been really helpful to us in, in many ways, because what we can do now as the pandemic eases and we move back to hybrid working and immersive technologies in our meeting rooms um, is we can keep hold of the best of that practice, you know, video where it makes sense, but face to face where that makes sense as well. So really, I think the key for us now is get, to get the best of both worlds. And my role as the provider of the technology is to make sure that we've got the right tools to be able to be agile. Uh, and change our ways of working to reflect the data that we see and the needs that we see from the communities we serve. Can I um, add um, an issue about the professional workforce and just thinking about the job content of social workers or, or nurses or OTs? So there's, there's something about our strategy which we're learning as we're going that actually um, technology, uh, it's not just about placing it in, in the relatively simple situations, our strategy, what, what it's teaching us is that in really quite complex situations like personality disorder or autism or dementia, that, that there's a huge potential of um, trying to use these tools as an aid to professional practice, as well as obviously to meet people's needs, which is the core, you know, the core outcome of, that we're trying to achieve. But the examples of, and, and Sarah might need to help me with the names of these, but in the moment or brain in and the, the sort of the conceptual tools that help people with strong emotions settle or breaking down tasks so that people who are experiencing dementia can still be kept on track. And, and part of the reason for saying this about how, how well it can interface with the professional practice issue is that actually we have a bit of a workforce crisis building uh, in social care. We, I think we have a need for about 600,000 more people working in social care over the next sort of five, to seven years. And then just not coming, actually. I mean, I think we all realise that competition for jobs and people's preferences mean that we're always going to see our workforce as relatively scarce. So the more that technology can add to, to that equation and make working lives easier, 
as well as better outcomes for people. It's a crucial dimension of how you've got to think about um, these strategies, really. So constantly learning about how your professional model works, how technology adds to that, where it doesn't add value as well, and not, you know, not getting bogged down in that is a really important part of the process for us. Can I just add to that? I, I would certainly agree with James that we can't get enough social workers, even if we had an unlimited budget, the people just aren't out there. So I think it's really important that we use technology to free up our existing workforce to do the things that are most valuable, the things that they most want to do. So using intelligent automation, things like robotic process automation to take away the drudgery, to take away the administration and free them up to do what they do best to enable them to, to work with, with the patients and clients and residents uh, and to intervene earlier. That's another crucial opportunity that hopefully we can free them up to, to do if we can use technology for, for automation effectively. Yeah, and just picking up on that point, I think that's a really valid, valid point. And, and thinking around technology, it isn't a one size fits all. It's an enabler, it's to help. So I, I know we've had concerns raised before. Well, are you going to put technology in? What, I want that face to face contact. I want to see that person. That isn't the case. It is around helping and enabling all of our social care practice to be able to, to deliver the services. But as James and Jeff have both said, if technology can help, then let's use it. And one of the things we, we had a conversation, Jeff and I were involved in a conversation at the beginning of the week with um, a colleague from Shropshire who's been doing quite a lot of work around um, data analysis. And it was really interesting to hear his take in actually we, we as an authority, and I guess every other authority has got oodles of data. We, we're really, really data rich. What are we trying to solve? What are the problem we're trying to solve? And what are the questions that we need to be asking to then help us do some of those predictions, uh, some of those early modelings? And as James has said, we've got a depleting workforce and trying to attract social workers into the profession. How can technology help with that? And can some of that data analytics help? And can we be doing more with that? So I think we're just constantly moving forward. And what really excites me with the technology is it doesn't sit still. There's something all the time being developed. One thing with COVID that I think has been a bit of a hindrance, we haven't been able to get out and go and see. So I've been to a lot of technology conferences and it's great because you go along and I've been onto the autism bus, I've been onto the dementia bus and you can think, oh, wow, that would be great. If we did that in Norfolk, let's go out there, let's go and do that. And so for me, looking forward to some of these reopenings again, to go and have a look at what is available and then bring it back to our commissioners and say, right, look, this would be great to either work with a provider on this or work with our workforce on this, but to see what else is, is there out and, and currently available. Tim, did you want to come in and, and reflect on anything at this point? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, from my perspective, and, you know, I've, I've said this earlier in, in the podcast that, you know, when I look at Liverpool and, and Norfolk and some of the leading authorities from a tech point of view, they really are pushing the boundaries. Um, and it's it's really refreshing to hear, I guess, some of the, the use cases that have been discussed. So I spend probably the majority of my time trying to work with authorities and, and, it, and it tends to be, you know, focused on the more traditional areas because ultimately that's, you know, there's 1.7, 1.8 million people in the UK that rely on this stuff. It's, it's, it's life critical. And inevitably, that's where the majority of my time sits. It's you know around 
some of the things that were talked about earlier around smoke detectors and false sensors and things like that because ultimately we've got to make sure that they work but we've also got an eye on the future as well as has been mentioned the analog to digital change and a lot of the technology is changing and and it's really great to hear that Norfolk are pushing those boundaries looking at new ways of working if you like you know particularly when I when I think about LoRaWAN and how that's being deployed at the moment as you've said around monitoring activities of daily living predictive and preventative you know a lot of technology in the UK at the moment is deployed at the end of the scale where people are already kind of at that critical sort of area of their lives but actually if we can start to push that further back in the life cycle we can start to help people with technology before they get to the stage and and it will help them stay out of whether that's more formal uh, support or you know those type of areas as well so it's 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 really great to um hear about that and and, and obviously from an infrastructure point of view how that's been pushed because particularly in somewhere rural you know a, a lot of our members Herefordshire has been mentioned Norfolk again where mobile coverage is very patchy and a lot of the 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 technology the digital technology at the moment it does rely on 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 a reasonable mobile signal and that's really a challenge that we're giving to our tech supply members and so using those alternative methods of connectivity whether that's broadband or whether that's you know LoRaWAN or some other method of getting out there that's that's really important for the future so yeah that's that's really um where i'm coming from and what I, my my kind of plea i guess to to norfolk and everyone else is is please pass on those good case studies where you've done something and it's worked really well it's part of our role is to is to i guess spread that that good news amongst our other members because ultimately we rely on the vanguards here to kind of go and learn the lessons make the mistakes and then get it right to then to then pass on to some of other other members who are either you know not as far down that line you know from our, our perspective can i just chip in and say i think partnership working is, is is crucial here whether that's us working with mobile network operators to share access to our tall buildings and fire towers and things like that or employing a full-time highways member staff as we do to pave the way and help in terms of way leaves and just taking away all those barriers to deploying infrastructure right through to the other end of the spectrum where it's about pooling and sharing data for an for appropriate uses both operational and, and strategic and analytical we've got the norfolk office of data analytics that we've created jointly between norfolk county council the nhs uh, police uh, and the districts trying to pool data to answer the, those those wicked questions those place-based questions uh, through to the more prosaic but equally important shared care record that we're working on because actually there's so many great practical examples about how we can deliver better care cheaper care faster care um, just by sharing some key information across the the different entities and i have to say covid has been helpful in that respect it's it's caused people to work more closely together. The copy notices have enabled us to, to share data with, uh, with more pace uh, and, and less bureaucracy. So I, I do think we're, we're moving in the right direction in terms of pooling that intelligence and working effectively together. Uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll keep that up. I want to pick up um, on what Tim has said about the need for learning and for passing learning on and the, 
and the kind of building of a movement, I suppose, really around this. And um, but it leads me to think as well that we're at a particular time for adult social care, which is a government thinking deeply about reform and where it wants to go with the model. And um, we can expect, I think, a couple of white papers um, before the end of um, December 21. So one on integration and, and another one on social care reform itself. And um, as I understand it, both of those uh, white papers will have chapters on technology. So there's a key national moment here about what framework of expectations can we set right across England in local authorities amongst providers and crucially in the relationship between the NHS and local government about um, technology. And uh, my expectation is there, there absolutely ought to be room for getting the basics right, right across the piece, but also for innovation and for incentivizing that innovation. I mean, I, I don't underestimate the amount of work that Jeff has done, that Sarah does, that our partners do in bringing about our strategy and then working on it over a five year period. Actually, there are resources that are needed to do that. There's a business case in doing it because it leads to more efficiencies and, and in some cases, you know, financial savings. But some national resource in this space, some incentives seem to me to be a really important part of how you spread the learning and how you um, uh, create you know, a big expectation about um, national action, national support for this stuff, because we're trying to convince the public here as well as convince ourselves and government's definitely got a role to play in that, it seems to me. This is something that's come up in an earlier podcast around sort of promoting innovation and making sure that that promotion is is sustainable so often you know pilot funding comes to an end and that pilot comes to an end and it doesn't get scaled up or spread necessarily in 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 what it could perhaps be i just wanted to pick up on something around the sort of shared learning and it's something that's come up during this project is around there's examples of good practice out there but sometimes the, the, the sort of missing piece is the honest discussions about where things haven't gone as planned or the challenges that organisations face along the way. And I think that's really important part of the learning process for other local authorities who might be considering taking a particular approach to understand, okay, this, this is where you can get to, but along the way, these are some of the potential pitfalls or, or booby traps that you might come across and this is how you could navigate them. So I wondered if along your journey, you also faced challenges. I mean, Anne from, from Liverpool has spoken about some of the challenges they faced around their mesh network. Have you encountered issues along the way, aside from COVID, of course, which has been an accelerator, but, you know, it has also been devastating. Yeah, I'm happy to come in on that. So we've got two pilots running at the moment, one's with Alcove and one's with Brain in Hand. The Alcove one, I have to say, has gone, I'd say, really smoothly. It's really hit, it's gone off the ground and everybody's been really keen and we've got some brilliant examples of how it's helped help people. And we're at that stage where we're going to be then thinking we've, um, it's a project, we, we've got some funding through the STP. What do we do next with it? Where do we go with it next? And if we want to roll it out next, how are we going to fund that? So we're at that stage with, with Alcove. But I, I do feel that will be really easy to push forward because as I say, we've got really positive experiences. With Brain in Hand, it's been a little bit different. And I think that's been because of potentially the commitment that we've been able to give to that from our services and I think because everybody is so um, under the cosh at the moment there's so much going on it's been really hard to potentially give that time to really promoting that so I feel that hasn't gone as well 
as the alcove and I think when you run into similar projects at the same time it's easier to compare um, because if you do them I don't know at different times and you think about how did that go what what went well there but I think with this it's I'm really comparing the two all the time I'm now trying to get underneath so what what can we do with this because I believe in this product and I think it's a brilliant product and we really need to start to promote that and and think about how we roll that out but we ha we're not quite there so it is causing us an issue at the moment and um, but that's something i want to really try to get underneath to think okay so what's causing it not to be as, as successful as alcove i think if, if i could ask a, a, a question as well around that is quite often we see and it's interesting uh, that you say that and, and and it's great that you've got again two progressive um solutions there sometimes with with an alcove or that type of product is it's almost like right we've got a thousand of these devices let's push them out and but there's no real kind of you know established kind of need sometimes those so it's almost like here's some devices going and then people sat there going like well I, you know don't necessarily know what to do and they don't get so it's so it's really interesting that you've you've made that a success whereas in my mind i'm almost like well the, the brain enhanced stuff that that's less of a product as such more of a a service so i could almost it surprises me that you you say that you know and that's and that's great and um i wonder whether and i know that you know working with helen and people like that whereas with alcove they there is a lot of service that goes into that as well it's not just the product that supplies but they actually give you the the insight as well uh, and whether that's made a difference potentially as well as to why it's been a big success it's not just a load of devices here you go but actually here's some insight as well I think you're absolutely right, Tim. And I think looking back on that, Helen has been massively supportive and we've worked closely with Rethink Partners as well. And they've been really, really good in, in helping us promote that um, in some of our marketing, in um, some of the news stories. So I think we've done it between the three of us. So it's been Norfolk County Council, it's been Alcove, it's been Rethink. And I think because we've done it as a combined effort, that potentially is why it's been so successful. So I, th I think that's a really good point. My observation would be that technology-enabled change is comprised generally of people, process, and technology. Uh, and sometimes people have a budget for the technology and forget that tech on its own doesn't do anything. It's just an overhead. So actually, it's not underestimating the digital skills development that will be needed in these initiatives and also change management, You know, helping people to see what's in it for them and for their customer. Why should they do it? And so I, I think the key is often to have a well-rounded project or program and wherever possible to be data-driven. One of the challenges I've found around digital inclusion is, is not having the numbers. You know, we know that people's exclusion can be caused by lack of connectivity, lack of kit, lack of skills, lack of awareness, lack of support. But in what proportion and where are they? How many of them? What do they need? And that's what we've been really working hard on with our digital inclusion strategy recently. Also, the funding for this is often piecemeal, as Sarah touched on earlier. It comes a little bit of capital here, a little bit there. Maybe it comes at the last minute. You have to have a project ready to roll at the drop of a hat. But I'm a big fan of the principle that if you can measure it, you can manage it. I think we have got a wealth of data. And um, if we can articulate the business case for some of these challenges, we've got a better opportunity to address it. I think in working collaboratively with our communities of practice through ADAS and through Socketum and with the LGA, we've got a really good opportunity to use that evidence base to create the business case and to do something really strategic off the back of that. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Jeff. And I think just just going back, thinking around the projects, you're right. All of a sudden, we think there's some funding available. Oh, let let what can we do? Can we can we meet those um, meet those requirements? Is that something we can go for? And something that we're working on at the moment is almost coming up with a wish list. So, if money was no object, what would you want? So then, if all of a sudden a funding pot comes available, go through your list and you think, ah, oh, that meets that criteria. Let's beef it up. Let's add to it, and then we can do that. Because I think if we can be prepared in that way. I do think we miss out on opportunities because it is such a quick turnaround and you've got to see it and then think, oh, well, what could we do with that? So I do think if we could have a wish list, I think that would be really good. The other thing I was just going to add, I did some work with Rethink and the LGA. I think it was the beginning of last year, so just before the pandemic, where we were looking at all of those things, um, technologies that we've tried to implement, the good and the bad and the ugly, and doing a bit of a, let's have a, let's have that, and so we can share that with other authorities. So if somebody's thinking about, well, I want to look at this particular product, then share our experiences so that people, and it's not necessarily going to be the same experience, but people could then learn from that. So if things haven't worked, learn from that. So as I say, we did that piece of work and I have got a conversation with Rethink later on today. So I was going to just ask where that got to because I think that would be really useful to try and pick that up again, just to really as a help for, for other authorities as well. I think that would be really great. I mean, it's something that from a TSA perspective, we we spend quite a lot of time on. Um, it used to be regional surgeries when we were able to do more face-to-face -face stuff and, it, and it, it's obviously moved online now, so it's less regional, but it is a case of getting a load of commissioners and buyers in a room and saying right what are you doing what's worked well and almost collating all that information so that you know we can try and help support people navigate people through those those difficult decisions and when i reflect on you know we're talking about lessons learned here some of the some of the other authorities of things that they've struggled with and partic particularly during covid is developing really nice kind of services but then not being able to drive that culture change through the, the 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 staff that are almost responsible for making those referrals in or for spotting those opportunities and and that's been the really tough bit i, I think has has been almost working on the mindset of individuals but from a remote perspective rather than sometimes it's easier to have those conversations on a face-to-face -face basis and constantly be there supporting them through it and it's more difficult remotely so it, if i'm thinking about social workers it's how do they how do we get their sort of mindset into the the technology is is should be up there for consideration alongside the more kind of formal care and support and it, it it's a really tough thing to do and I, I don't know you know if you've come across that as well in the in the in the services that you're working with. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Tim. I think. Um... It's some and some, and I think it's going to be the same in any any organisation. You've got some that are really pro-technology and, yes, this would really help, and others that aren't. So it is that cultural shift on bringing people along with us. And I do think some of those use cases are really good because when you can talk through and say, well, this was Mary, this is what happened to Mary, um, as we've done with the alcove, because it makes you sit and think, actually, wow, that's really good. And we couldn't have even provided that, but technology can. So I think it is about building 
on some of those. And again, going back to the conferences, I, I know coming to, to some of the TSA conferences and listening to some of those where it's happened, there was a particular um, home care provider who talked about some of the services he'd, he'd provided. He was a home carer. And if ever you wanted to go into that profession, that was a time because he just, it was so powerful. And, and you don't think about it, but just thinking about his experiences, you just think, wow. And that was a really good opportunity to listen to what others are doing. Um, and he certainly promoted that profession. I, I'd like to have known whether many people sort of signed up to it after that, because he was absolutely brilliant, really good. We've definitely got a recording of it, so I'll, I'll dig it out and make sure it's circulated on social media again. <laughs> I think there's a balance, isn't there, between having your experts. So I'm thinking of assistive technology now. We've got a team who are deeply expert in this area. But then you need the wider workforce to understand. They're never going to be expert, but they need to understand enough of it to spot the opportunities and sell the benefits. I think it's the same with digital inclusion as well. I think all our staff are advocates and they're kind of emissaries, if you like, for uh, promoting the opportunities that come from being connected and having digital skills. And so it's making sure that people know enough to be helpful, but recognizing that we can't all be experts in everything. Just to add to, add to what Jeff is saying there about this notion that what is really powerful is to get people to speak for themselves, the people we're serving to just just describe um what difference things have made and and not to forget that just because we're talking about this particular area of our work it's just like any other we we get things out of kilter misshapen and get them wrong in all kinds of areas of uh, public service delivery and that's absolutely you know it's in a way it's absolutely fine isn't it you just need to uh, learn from that adapt what you're doing and, and move on and this is this is no different in a way and up and and um it's ironic, isn't it? We're, we're now living in a time where just in time and efficiencies are sort of slightly falling apart in the world because we've had the shock to the system that we've had. But it's reminded us that a lot of innovation comes from trying something and just deciding, actually, that didn't work. And, you know, of course, that's that's how you progress. And, you know, so I really I do think we need to show both tolerance to staff getting it wrong or, or um, the issues not working very well and things not lining up, but also show a passion for getting the stories out there. Because that, that seems to me what really motivates people to make to make a difference, really. And I think, you know, in, I, I would say in Norfolk, the focus on this itself has meant that we probably had some conversations that we wouldn't have had because we've just created the energy and the willingness to try stuff out, really. I, I hope, as director, that spreads to innovation more generally. I'm sure it must do it to some degree. I totally agree, uh, James. And I think even thinking around the assistive technology team, it's a brilliant team and, and they really get it and they do share that with the rest of the department. But one of the other things we're looking at at the moment is a tech lending library. So where people can go in um, and lend bits of tech. If it works for them, absolutely great. If it doesn't, they can take it back. But it gives that gives people that chance to almost try before you buy. So that's something we've just started and, um, but it'd be really, really be good to watch and to see how that then rolls out. And if I could just add, that's part of a wider tech lending library. So people can go to any of our um, libraries network and um, they can borrow you know, potentially a laptop, a Wi-Fi device, they can get some advice and guidance and potentially pick up assistive tech at the same time. So it's a combination of, 
borrowing equipment, but also getting that advice and support at the same time that, that you need. So as James said earlier, it's about agility. It's about learning at pace. And sometimes that means failing. But what's the term? Fail forward, fail fast, uh, and then keep iterating. I think increasingly that is our new way of working. Thank you. There's been loads of fantastic advice in there for, for people thinking about exploring these issues. And I just wondered if you wanted to just summarise with your final thoughts for commissioners in terms of advice on how to move forward. We need to move on, actually, from a from a commissioning model into much more of a collaborative way of working. And in, in the NHS, in ICSs, that's what's happening now. Innovation is coming from providers coming together with commissioners, coming together with partners, bring expertise in and just trying stuff out and not really worrying about the commercials too much up front. I know that's easy for me to say and difficult to do, especially if you're doing things at, at scale. But for the kind of things we're talking about, it's probably quite safe to to um, almost not take a commissioning approach, ju just to um, collaborate, try it, and then move on to formal commissioning if that's what is needed for the next step. And I, I hope in local government that is the attitude that also prevails along, alongside working with the NHS. Otherwise, I think people become very risk averse to try and stuff out. I would agree with that. I think it's about starting small, doing things proof of value, proof of concepts fast, um, and then iterating and scaling where you see that they work. And I think if you do that in collaboration with your partners from the outset, then you've got a better chance of success than trying to bring them in further down the line when you've done something on your own. I really think as we do this, we really shouldn't forget inequalities. But such a strong theme has emerged in the past year about how um, disproportionate the impact of poor outcomes have been on protected groups or people uh, at, at risk of exclusion and so on. So I think we have to take a conscious step to think about that, not, not just digital inclusion, which is a kind of generic term, but I think targeted action on areas of our geography that we know are going to be suffering poor outcomes. So if I take Norfolk, I, I know that some of our urban areas in Great Yarmouth and some groups of people, uh, particularly um, black and minority ethnic uh, uh, population and, and um, colleagues, you know, they are at a disadvantage. So we've actually got to use this agenda to try and see if we can create equalisation. And, and if we don't, they'll remain at a sort of double disadvantage, really, once you put digital exclusion over the, over the top of that ordinary inequality lens. So I think it's a really important part of the agenda for me. And I suppose that the, the work you're doing around data and around being able to link that across different parts of your services and, and, and even more broadly than the local authority can help with that sort of smart intelligence on how the, the particular inequalities and the particular areas that you might need to focus your attention on. Can I also add that we are reliant upon central government and its agencies to help us provide some, some better standards and interoperability around digital identity? At the moment, it's difficult because everybody creates their own digital identity solutions and tries to plug them in together. I'd be really interested in how we could have a single sign-on for the area that combines the NHS digital identity with a government digital identity so that we can join up our services for our citizens. I think uh, digital and electronic uh, data interchange give us ways of really joining up those services uh, and making them look much more coherent than they might do uh, physically. But it is dependent upon 
that um, that standards work and developing new capabilities, moving on from the um, dare I say the failures that we've seen with Verify. It's a negative note to, to end on, isn't it? You might want to edit that one somewhere else or remove it, but it, it is an important digital infrastructure capability, a foundation that, that we need to deliver joined up local services. And I think, Jeff, to, to add into the positive is really building on the copy notices. We've had an opportunity to be able to really share that data where we failed before, where we couldn't perhaps share some of that information and some of that data. Let's make sure we build on that and we don't lose that good, the good that that has brought us. That's a positive to, to counteract the negative. <laughs> I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining me and Tim today. Um, really fascinating discussions and we hope that you've all enjoyed listening to this podcast bye everyone